Mentally Unscripted, Episode 30, a conversation with Brandon Wark of Free State, Colorado. there. So today we're welcoming Brandon Wark to the Mentally Unscripted family, and I'm really excited for this one. By way of quick introduction, Brandon started volunteering on local political campaigns, and he was hired by the National Association for Gun Rights and consulted on various political races. And then last year, Brandon started freestatecolorado.com. And out there, he writes about local political issues, conducts interviews, and tries to spur people to action. It's a great website. There's some really great articles and some great podcasts out there. So I definitely recommend everyone go out there and take a look at it. And now on to the interview. So welcome, Brandon. How are you doing today? Hey, very well. Thank you for having me. Well, we're really, really glad that you're here. Really excited to have you here. I just recently discovered Free State Colorado within the last few months when I decided to get a little involved with the Libertarian Party, which you're also uh, involved with here in Colorado. I'm glad it's something that I discovered. I'm really enjoying going through some of your old podcasts. So can you just tell us a little bit about Free State Colorado? What What is it? What's your goal? Definitely. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I started Free State Colorado in April of 2020, right as all this COVID crisis started to appear and started to kind of take over our state and restrictions on our liberty, lockdowns, mask mandates, etc. You know, I have a, a pretty extensive political background. For years, I made a living actually consulting on political campaigns. I learned a lot when I was working at the National Association for Gun Rights. And I wanted to use my political knowledge and experience to help, you know, help get involved with the issues we're facing today, both in the local community and in the state. You know, if you want to, I'd love to talk a little bit about what got me into politics. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, give us that aha moment. I mean, what what happened that got you going on that down that road? Yeah, definitely. So I was, you know, I'm Colorado native, born and raised here, worked into retail until they closed my Sears store down, you know, the era of big box stores kind of ended. So I decided to travel and you know like any land-loving Colorado and I decided to try something new and, and different so I got a job working on cruise ships actually so for two years I got to travel the world met many people and saw many things and when I was traveling you know I was interacting with all the crew members most of them from Philippines and Indonesia Eastern Europe India and hearing their stories about what it was like in their countries and in their communities and then contrasting to that that with my experience in here in Colorado and the life that I live and then seeing the news stories about these restrictions on our freedom, some economic issues, some political issues really spurred me to action to have this, I'd say, I got to get involved. I got to do something when I get back home because what we have here is is really special. You know, the freedoms and the liberties and the, the economic opportunity that we have is, is something that a lot of people take for granted. And it really, that aha moment for me was being overseas and seeing some of these poor countries and interacting with people from really poor backgrounds. And one guy asked me, he says, you're an American. Why are you here? Why are you working on a cruise ship? You're rich. You can do anything back home. And it was really then, you know, being so isolated here, as a lot of Americans are, I really realized, oh my gosh, what is this? What kind of opportunity do I have at home? What have, what have I been taking and granted for my whole life? And so, yeah, I got back and then in 2014, I started volunteering on local political 
political campaigns and, and it exceeded my expectations beyond anything I thought I would do. You know, worked at the state capitol in Denver for a legislative session, consulted on a governor's campaign, U.S. Senate, really got to see how the sausage is made and, and see how the process really works aside from what they teach you or tell you about in school or college. And so now with this whole COVID madness taking over our country and our state, I, I got to get involved, got to do something to stand up and use my voice and my experience to try and make a difference. That's great. I do have to ask you, being a Colorado native, how the heck did you end up on a cruise ship? <laughs> yeah, I I, online. No cruise ships around Colorado. No, I'd, see, I'd seen the ocean twice in my life, didn't know much about it. I was working and somebody said, hey, why don't you go work on a cruise ship? I go, cruise ship? I've never even thought of being going on a cruise. And I found an online ad. I had to fly up to Toronto, do an all-day interview. And luckily, my retail and sales experience landed me a job selling uh, t-shirts and trinkets in a gift shop on a, a celebrity cruise line and just had a blast. Uh, first week there, we had an overnight in San Francisco, went to Hawaii four times in my first two months, Panama Canal. I mean, it was unbelievable. It really opened my eyes to the world around me. And yeah, an opportunity I highly recommend. That's very interesting. You know, I was curious about you you're saying how the sausage was made. You know, on, on this podcast, we talk a lot about models and how to understand a model for pretty much anything you experience in your life as a way to create understanding. What was a, a really significant or impactful moment and, and lesson that you got from learning about the sausage? Maybe something that you thought was true that just wasn't. It was really kind of mind-blowing. The biggest, one of the big mind-blowing things for me in my political experience was realizing that most politicians don't have an ideological bent. They're not acting out of a belief system necessarily. It's acting more about politicians are acting to get elected and not only to get elected, but to continue their career and move up and up and up till eventually they can become, you know, in their mind, I'm sure the president or, you know, emperor of the planet <laughs> for those with the big ego. But Palpatine. really it was about, you know, yeah, to be Palpatine, you know, that's probably the dream of a lot of politicians. So realizing that, you know, here in our, our political discourse on the news you would or online, you would think, you know, that the Democrats are communists and the Republicans are fascists. And the truth of the matter is they have very little political for the majority of them. Now, there are ideologues on both sides, but for the majority of politicians, they have very little or loose political ideology. And really, it's what's convenient to get them elected. So when a lobbyist comes along or when leadership in the state house says, vote for this bill, sponsor this other bill, you know, we're going to provide a cover for the opposition on this issue. If it means their career is going to be further, they're going to go along with it. Yeah, that, I think that would surprise a lot of people who who want to believe to the idea that people are acting out of principle, which which probably goes a lot to say what 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 we're hoping for versus what we're seeing. Exactly. We say on this podcast a lot that incentives matter. And I think that's a perfect example is that the incentive here is to get elected. So they're willing to adopt whatever persona they need to in order to get people to vote for them. Just recently, the Mayor Hancock here in Denver has mandated the vaccine for uh, what city employees and all what high risk public employees, private employees, I guess. And I've been wondering, I'm like, if he really thinks that this is the way to go, or if he's just doing this to score brownie points or political points with the Democratic Party. So from what you're saying, it kind of sounds like maybe the cynic in me is correct that he may be just doing this to score brownie points with the political with the Democratic Party. Maybe he has aspirations to move up, maybe become governor or maybe senator. I don't know. What do you think? Does that seem to fit with what you're what you've seen from politicians? I think it's no mistake to be cynical these days. <laughs> Especially when talking about politics. 
but yeah, I think there's uh, the key there. Why a politician acts is because it's going to further their career. It's going to provide them in a better position to, to move upward and onward to where they want to be. So it's very difficult for those with a conscience or, or a backbone to make waves and to stand up because the money from donations for political action committees, from the party, from big time donors, they direct a lot of the discourse. And so in order to, to move on, you need support, you need organization behind you. So for the mayor, I'm sure, you know, his network of supporters, whether they be rich billionaires out of DC or grassroots activists at the local level, they control a lot of his actions. So he wouldn't act out of accordance with them. He would want to do what they say and move forward that way to further his career. So what do you think the answer would be to get the the special interest out of politics so that our politicians did start acting, for lack of a better word, just start acting more ideologically and less less in response to the people who can further their career? It's a very good question. Like you said, incentives matter. And I think that's a big key there. The special interests are important because they do represent a segment of the population, whether it be voters, whether it be you know a minority community, maybe that doesn't have a voice on their own. But if they can team up with a larger special interest group, they can kind of get their agenda passed in the legislature or at the national level. So special interests overall, I don't know that they're entirely bad. There are a lot of good if you're from a pro-liberty perspective, which is what I have. There are some good special interest groups out there. So special interest in general, I don't know that, that getting rid of them is even is possible or would be even preferable. And I don't know that we'd want politicians to act more ideological either, because there's some dangerous ideologies out there these days. I mean, do you have any idea what we could do to get politicians to start acting in the best interests of their constituents rather than themselves? Any thoughts on that? Oh, definitely. Yeah, that's that's part of the whole goal behind Free State Colorado is to really try and mobilize an activist community here that can speak out and get involved with the politicians. I think the future belongs to those who show up. The future belongs to those who participate. That's really where it's what's going to take. So it's it's difficult and it's hard for a lot of people to hear that, but we got to start taking responsibility for our community and stand up as individuals, use our voice, use our platform and speak out for issues we believe in. Because if we don't do it, no one else will. So with Free State Colorado, there's a lot of websites or ideas that are out there. I imagine being in the, the machine and seeing how the sausage is made, you saw a lot of what was already in, in existence. How did you decide to put that together? And what did you see as sort of the gap that wasn't being filled? Well, I think a lot of the political discourse revolves around the national level where people are, most of their political bandwidth is taken up by, you know, means the major networks. So they're paying attention to the presidential race. Hey, what did the president tweet? What did he say? What are they doing at the in Congress or the Senate? And although that's very interesting, it doesn't really affect us on a day-to-day level as much as our local governments do. You know, your local city, state, and county governments are the ones that are going to determine maybe whether you have a job tomorrow, whether your kids are going to a good school and getting a good education, whether your roads are paved. You know, our day-to-day lives are wrapped up in the machinations of, the, of these local political units that very few people pay attention to. So while all the attention is on the national level, here in your city council, they could be passing something that maybe raises your water rates to a point of unaffordability. And it maybe it gets 30 seconds on the news, but it's affecting thousands of people. Whereas, you know, some ridiculous story at the national level might attract all the attention, but really doesn't have an impact on your day-to-day life. So really, I say the mission of Free State Colorado is to promote a culture of liberty, freedom of the individual, and a free market. And the emphasis is really here at the local level in my state and county 
and in the communities. So I want to be a, a place where people can network and really understand what's going on in their community. What are the fights that are happening? How can people get involved? It's pretty inspiring when you realize there's there's hundreds, maybe thousands of people across the state who are actively involved fighting their own little battles. And I think with proper organization and mobilization, we can kind of work together and tackle some of the bigger issues that are facing our state. So you mentioned the water issue. So this is one thing that I wanted to talk to you about. Can you explain to the folks what's going on with the water issue here? It's in Westminster, right? Yeah, well, definitely here in Colorado and the Western United States, water is going to be one of the biggest issues we're going to be talking about for several decades coming up. I'm confident of that. As the population increases, our water supply is not increasing with that population increase. So that's going to lead to scarcity. And, you know, studying economics, we know, you know, bigger demand, lower supply, the prices are going to go up. There's going to be a need to find new solutions to figure out how to give people water, you know, as, as you hear often, water is life and you can't live without it. So one of the big issues recently was in the city of Westminster, here in the north, northern part of the Denver metro area, where the city council basically raised the water rates for a big section of the community to astronomical levels. So I had the opportunity just recently last month to actually interview several people in the community and hear their stories. And it, it was shocking. I mean, I'm, I'm used to hearing about some of the problems that people have in communities uh, related to politics. But when you hear stories about, you know, 90 year old people who've been living in their homes for 50 years, who can't water their gardens anymore, who are afraid to flush their toilets, who are using their sink water and recycling it over and over again, Again, because they can't, they can't afford it. People who are going to the food bank for the first time in their lives because their water bills are too high. You know, people on fixed incomes with expensive medications who now find themselves in a situation they never dreamed of. To hear these stories happening in our local community and in, in the United States of America and Colorado in a, in a wealthy area, it was shocking. It was absolutely shocking. There's a lot to unravel with that story, and I'm going to continue to to kind of dig into it. But it seems that. Some of the gist of it, I guess, is that there's a lot of development going on, a lot of uh, high density development happening. And in order to pay for the infrastructure, a lot of the, for this new high density housing, a lot of the people in the community are, are ending up paying for it. Basically, their water bills are going up through fees and extra charges, which is going to be used to upgrade the water system so that these new developments can now come into the community. So a lot of people who have lived in a small town area of Westminster where there's been horses and, and ranch land and farmland for generations are now facing paying for big development that they don't necessarily want. And I think that kind of issue we're going to see more and more. But what was fascinating to me was to see a, a group of neighbors who came together on social media. They start posting, hey, my water bill's skyrocketed. How about yours? And all of a sudden, this pattern started emerging about hundreds of people in the community saying, oh my gosh, this is crazy. And they started getting organized, started attending city council meetings, started questioning the local political authorities you know, about it. They weren't getting straight answers. They weren't getting any satisfactory answers. Nobody could explain to them why their water bills went up so much. So they mounted a recall campaign, which is a, a tool here in Colorado to basically uh, generate a special election, create a special election that's going to cause a recall election where somebody who's previously been elected or is in an elected position now faces a second election, basically, to kick them out of office. So they thought their reasoning was, this is the only way our voice can be heard. So let's get a recall going. Let's start making some noise in the community. And maybe then the politicians will pay attention to us. Unfortunately, the recall effort failed. And there was a massive organization, uh, was organizational electioneering effort on the side of the of the city council people to defend their people there. So um, it's an issue that's not going to go away. It's not going to end, especially with the elections coming up in November. I'd be very interested, interested to see what happens. But water is something that people in the West need to be paying close attention to.
wow, that's amazing to hear. That's I can't believe that, like you said, in the U.S. and in an area like Denver, that would happen. Did the city council, I mean, did they hold public hearings on raising the water rates? I, was the public at all consulted or allowed to make comment on this before they raised the rates? Yes and no. There were some uh, meetings that were held. And um, as you may know, city council meetings don't necessarily draw a lot of, a large audience. A lot of people weren't aware of it. A lot of people didn't know it happened. And to get to uh, Paul's question earlier, talking about getting involved in the community, and, and Scott, you were asking as well, like what to do about this. It's really showing up and getting involved, really trying to understand what's happening in your community because, you know, they could be passing a new law that creates new restrictions on you that you don't even know about until you get the bill in the mail. So there were some hearings. Uh, some of the stuff seemed pretty uh, obfuscated, kind of difficult to understand for a lot of the people in the city. And then there's new meetings that are happening now, new hearings. People are starting to show up now. So people are starting to pay a little bit more attention. So, you know, oftentimes it takes a crisis or it takes something to happen before people really start to pay attention and get involved. Is there any sense that the developers who are going to be benefiting from this new infrastructure, were they coming down on the side of the city council and helping to defend them? Any sense that that was going on? You know, I don't know the details entirely on that. I'd be speculating. But from stories I've heard, that could be quite, that could be possible. I would imagine that when money's involved, uh, you know, things can go a certain way. But I'd be speculating on that point. Right. We definitely don't want to speculate, but like we said, incentives matter. So if these developers have an incentive to get together with the city council to do this, I I imagine that they would. I was curious about that. Thinking back to your original comment about how the sausage is made, um, at least at the state level, right? You, you think that people don't have an ideological bent. They're looking about their next election. How do you think that plays out into these sort of local issues? Is it really just that? Just It just scales as you go? Or are, are there other considerations at more of the local level? And, I think and, for and the sorry. most part, no, sir. I want to I want to add on one point. Like, do you do you see this as an ideological issue, or, or or people think of it as ideological, and it really isn't? Because again, the dynamics are different when you're local versus national. There, for some people, there will be an ideological bent. There are the hardcore activist types who get involved for the for fighting on what they believe in. But for the the mainstream pol- politicians and their their class of political consultants that uh, make money off of them, for them, I think it's more just business as usual. It's going to be, hey, I get to this position in the city council, I do what I'm told, I follow the the guiding guidance that I'm getting from the people in the higher up position. And I'm going to be rewarded with that, with a higher level position. And the way they do that is through, you know, donations and consideration when there's a vacancy and funneling. What the, the political machine in Colorado, uh, particularly on the Democratic side, is very, very well organized and having a funnel where they can find people at the city council level, recruit them at a very early stage, and then move them on up through the funnel to where they end up becoming Secretary of State, for example, like our current Secretary of State, Jenny Griswold. So there's a, there is an organized effort. I think ideology, for the most part, is just a way to get people excited and a way to try and move votes. What was interesting during the Westminster water recall was it was a nonpartisan effort. I talked to these ladies. A third of them were Democrats. A third of them were Republicans. A third of them were independents. They cared. They didn't really care about political party. For them, that, it had nothing to do with it. However, the city council member they were trying to recall uh, is involved with the Colorado Democratic Party. So they were posting pictures online of the mailers that the, the Democratic establishment was sending out in order to support their candidate and stop the recall. And they made it seem hyper-partisan. It was very interesting to see how the Democrats were using 
partisan language in order to frame the election around partisan issues to try and move voters in their direction because the Westminster area in general is, is mostly blue. So they were using it more as a marketing technique when the reality of it, of it was people involved in the recall were not Republicans attacking a Democrat. It wasn't about that at all. However, it was very convenient for the Democrats to use that language in order to defend one of their own. So I see that happening a lot. There's definitely some overlap. I think in the, the network of activists that are active in Colorado, and I imagine the rest of the country, a lot of them, it is for ideological reasons. However, the organizers behind a lot of this are mostly consultants. There are people making money, getting paid by politicians to further careers. And it's become an actual industry where the, the process of making sausage has become highly refined, to say the least. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, I, I think on our last episode, I talked about a book I'm reading right now called The Power Broker, which is like, you know, a thousand pages long. Are you familiar with that book? I'm not. And, uh, I heard it's a long book, though, maybe 60,000 pages long, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it goes on forever. But it, it's funny how, how, how well your story maps to what that is. And that's in New York City. Um, and But it's just it's it's fascinating that the patronage system of do what we say, don't you know make any ripples, and we'll just keep on moving you up. So, so I find that interesting. But the other thing that really got uh, got me thinking was how much power these parties, and I mean any party, I don't the left or right, Democrat or Republican, they get from capturing your attention at the national level. If they can get you to focus on this concept of national, then they can talk about areas where maybe there is more division, and they can keep you in this trance of confusion and animosity towards the other side. Whereas it's harder if you deal with local issues because local issues have solutions. They, they have a more defined problem and they have a probably more likely a more defined solution. So, it, it, you know, they, they, they lose their power unless they're able to focus you on the partisanism, if that's even a right, right term. I don't, I don't think, I think I just made up another word, poetic license. <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes no, and a, we'll become yeah. official. <laughs> Does that That's a great point, Paul. 100 percent, yes. I mean, you know, I've been down and dirty there. Some of the flyers and mailers that I designed in my time, I'm particularly proud of, but they are very uh, <laughs> emotion centered and very trying to rile people up and get them upset. So yeah, I mean, part of politics is to be successful in politics, you have to capture some of the zeitgeist of the moment and really try and and, and move people's emotions about what's going on. So yeah, you see, you know, if there's a, a blue area, then you're going to say, well, these people are are all Trump people on the city council, and we need to go after them. If it's a Republican area, you're going to say, well, all these people are, are Clinton people or Biden people or whoever it is, and we need to go after them. Whether that's true or not, if it's successful for an election, a campaign consultant is definitely going to do it. You know, So truth kind of is is separate from what it takes to get people elected. And maybe that's part of the problem. You know, you're asking, you guys were asking earlier, what is some of the, how do we address this problem? Maybe it's just getting more truth out there, kind of removing the monopoly on political discourse from the parties, from the consultant class, from the, the mainstream media that's been captured by this political class in our country. And maybe that's, you know, part of, I guess, part of what I want to do when I think about it is try and expose, well, who's funding what? I went through and did all of the ballot initiatives for last year here in Colorado, did an extensive breakdown of where did the money come from? Who were the people supporting this? And you just don't know until you look. And a lot of this data is public. So maybe maybe part of this solution to our political problems we have now is just getting a better, clearer understanding of the world around us and who's funding what, what, it, what, incent, what agenda do they have? What kind of incentives are they trying to create for our society in order to, to help them out at maybe at your expense? 
I think we would definitely be better off if we had a more nonpartisan approach to the world. And that it it was interesting you brought that up about trying to focus a little more on the truth, because that was the impetus behind us even starting this podcast is we wanted to try to get people to stop thinking in their tribal echo chambers and start understanding that there's more than one way to look at something. The last podcast we did talking about confirmation bias and our desire to be right. So we're going to seek out information that confirms our beliefs. Well, that means that you're going to have two different groups of people at odds with each other because each side is just constantly seeking out the information to confirm that they're right. So we want to try to, our goal is to get people to break through that, understand the dynamic that's happening. And maybe the first step is just trying to get people to just forget about political parties, look at what is happening, step out of that fake world, right? And into the real world where you just see what is happening around you. So one question I had is you mentioned the recall failed, but did Did the recall scare the city council at all? Have they made any efforts to change their policies, lower the water bills? What's going on with that? Yeah, so it was only last week that the recall um, election occurred. On uh, right today's August fourth, that was on July thirtieth. So it hasn't been too long of a time, or actually two weeks now. Excuse me, it was July twentieth that the recall ballots were due. So it hasn't been that long of a time. I'd say there's still a, a big lag in politics, and you know, politics is mostly reactive. So it will take a, a little bit of time to see. But yes, I can imagine that in my mind. Yeah, of course, the city council should be scared. Um, is aware that there are potentially thou- there are thousands of people who voted to get this guy out of office, thousands of people who are now mobilized and hopefully organized to kind of approach the city council from a position of strength where they can act in numbers to have some influence over the local government. So I really hope their efforts in Westminster continue and that they turn this into something even bigger where the community can become a little more empowered against this political machine that's taking their money from them and, and forcing a, a society that they might not necessarily want to see. So 100%. And I got to say, Scott, your, your point on um, you know it's technology kind of creating an echo chamber for people. I think about that all the time. I think exactly hit the nail on the head, especially with social media algorithms. We see the same thing over and over again. We're going to confirm our biases and we're going to click on things that we like. and We're going to see more of the things we like. And it's kind of a, a threat to society in a way because we're not exposing ourselves to new ideas and different ideas and, and this reinforcement of, of maybe strange beliefs that people are experiencing. Now, all of a sudden, they believe those strange beliefs even stronger than they did in the past. And we almost have this, this you know, bulk of society where ideologies are dominating small subsects of the population that, you know, are more, feel more empowered than ever to act in bizarre ways. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what life would be like if people would just start talking to their neighbors a little bit more, maybe start to realize like these people with opinions different than yours, they're real people, right? And one could be just right on the other side of the fence and somebody that you say hi to every day. I think that's how the purge started. A few neighbors started talking. Next thing we knew, everyone was just going out there and killing. It's just, it, it can never be a good thing. Okay. So there you guys, you heard it from Paul. Don't talk to people. Okay. Don't, don't, don't talk. <laughs> Actually, along those lines, as someone who's been in politics and you're, you're by your own words, you're, you're liberty focused. And so that puts you in the Libertarian Party. How did you come to have those beliefs in liberty? You know, what you now espouse is, is sort of your belief system. Was it an evolutionary process? Was there a light bulb moment that went off and said, oh, this is what I believe? How, how did you come to that? Uh, Paul, yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm fortunate enough to have been exposed to a lot of different ideas over my life. And it was definitely an evolutionary process. I think a lot of us go through our own intellectual development through the influences that we we have upon us through our lives. So, you know, everything from television to schooling, you know, when I was in high school, I was a liberal. 
and volunteered for the Colorado Democratic Party because that's all my prof- all my teachers, you know, were espousing those ideas and it seemed like the right thing to do, especially when Bush came to office and his war machine, you know, it really spurred me to say, hey, let's fight back. Let's do something about that. There's something, there's this American idea, I think, of being in the opposition, of kind of root for the underdog. So you see the swing of, of power when when one side is in, in ascendance, you know, the other side, it kind of can gather some energy, momentum from that. But yeah, no, definitely. I was a Democrat, you know, and that, and that what is the saying? They say, if you were never a liberal, you never had a heart. And if you don't become conservative, you probably didn't have a good job. You know, you probably didn't make a lot of money, something along those lines. But no, I, I was lucky enough to be exposed to some writings online, the internet. I started reading on a website called lewrockwell.com that I got exposed to and just reading some interesting articles and philosophy. There was this aha moment when I said, oh my gosh, this explains this explains so much. Because I think, you know, a lot of people on the left are looking for justice. They're looking for balancing the scales and trying to help out people who are disadvantaged. And then people on the right are saying, well, you know, I, I want to be free. Sure, let's help people out, but not at my expense. You can't bring me down to lift somebody else up. And in my mind, this liber- libertarian idea Theology or libertarian philosophy kind of is the balance of those things where leave me alone, let me do what I want, and we can make a better world together voluntarily. That coupled with an understanding of economics and reading a lot of great economists like Ludwig von Mises and Frederick Hayek and Henry Hazlitt and Murray Rothbard really led me to think that, hey, the thing I want the most is a is a society where there's less crime, less poverty, less suffering, where I can live a better life. And it turns out the free market is what leads to that kind of place where we, we are better off if we're able to keep our money and voluntarily exchange and build businesses and provide for the needs of people in our community. So that's kind of what led me to where I was, where I am now, I would say, is, is books, internet, you know, and I'm sure podcasts are the next generation's uh, kind of wake up call, you know. I don't know if I said it on the podcast, but Paul and I, we did a podcast where we talked about voting and we kicked around the idea of having a restricted pool of voters. One of the requirements for voting that could get you in that pool of voters would be just having a basic understanding of economics. And it doesn't have to be Austrian economics. It doesn't have to be Mises or Rothbard or a working knowledge of economics in one lesson. I, I don't care. Just some you can economic even be, system. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. You can even be Stephanie Kelton, MMT. Sure. Why not? Right. Right. Because you're still going to understand some of the basics, right? You're still going to sort of understand what supply and demand are and, and just the value of having prices in the economy and just the understanding that resources are scarce. No matter what politicians tell you, they can't snap their fingers and make healthcare appear for everyone in the world who wants it at any particular moment in time. I kind of forgot where I was going with this, but yeah, I, you know, I agree with you. I think understanding economics is one place to start. And like I said, you don't have to be a PhD, but if you just understand the basics of economics, I think you'll start to look at the world around you and understand a bit more about the mechanisms that are at play. And that can help you make more informed decisions when you're voting, when you're deciding what policy issues to support and not support. I just like it because you get to look at graphs and that's just super fun and cool, you know? <laughs> well, not so much in Austrian <laughs> economics. Austrians yeah, don't probably really not. do a lot of graphs, but they, they do some. They do some. They do a few, right? So I'm curious, In uh, you, you've had this evolution where you've you've moved through your thinking, through a lot of education, reading about economics. And, and I, I agree with, with both of you. To me, economics is the study of human behavior, which is 
so powerful in, in what it unearths and also what it what it lacks. I, I, I love economics, but I, I also feel like there's some uh, fundamental gaps in what it ultimately understand, which can be filled in with with some other analysis. But putting that aside, with what you're doing with Free State Colorado, are you coming across like are, are most of the people libertarian have similar views? Are you bringing in some other people that have different political views? And then when you encounter those people, what is that interaction like? Do you negotiate ideas? Is it combative? How does that work? Part of my goal is to find where we agree or where I agree with other people and then try and make progress in that regard. Um, for work, uh, I basically had one job my whole life, whether and that's sales. Whether I'm selling jewelry on a cruise ship or selling uh, you know, RVs is what I do now primarily, that's how I make my money, or selling political ideas on my off time. It's all about sales. And you sell something to somebody by finding about where you have to find out about them. You have to find out about the buyer. Where are they at? What do they believe? What do they think? What is that value proposition you can make to them? How are you going to provide value to them in their life? So, for example, my part of my goal with what I want to do is engage the Democrats on issues they care about. So we're talking criminal justice reform, maybe decriminalization of psychedelics, maybe banning red light cameras, some issues that can maybe really help their, their constituents. And then on the right, I want to work with them, with a lot of the Republicans on maybe protecting our Second Amendment rights, our gun rights, and, and limiting the restrictions on our right to keep and bear arms, and on a lot of the tax issues. So part of my strategy is to find where I agree with people and then work together on them there. Um, it doesn't always work, of course, because there is some overlap. You start talking about guns and somebody on the left maybe takes offense to that. You know, you start talking about defending legal cannabis here in Colorado, which is under threat to people on the right, and maybe lose some support there. So you got to kind of pick and choose your battles. And it can be a little bit of a challenge. Part of the strategy that the political machine has here in Colorado that the left has been so successful at is they have single issue advocacy groups. So they kind of get around this issue by creating groups focused on specific single issues then only talking to their supporters, their donors on those issues, even though at the top, the people who are running those organizations are coordinating with multiple other single issue groups for their own agenda to support specific candidates. What I'm trying to do is a little bit different and create a more broad philosophy of freedom and liberty. I do believe Colorado has a very strong libertarian, small L, not even libertarian party, but a small L libertarian kind of culture and community. You know, we were the first state to legalize recreational cannabis. It'd be Washington just because of the time difference in <laughs> that election night. You know, Galt's Gulch and Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged uh, was set in Colorado. Of course, you can't forget in the 1980s when our uh, local high school defeated the Soviet invasion in Red Dawn here in Colorado. <laughs> uh, the Libertarian Party Colorado, itself, right? right? The best, uh, the Libertarian Party itself was founded in Colorado. Uh, we have a, a huge streak of independent thinkers, of people who move here to leave the old their old communities behind and start a new life. So I think we're in a unique position here where people come to be more free. They come to, to, to fulfill the promise of the West, which is this frontier attitude where anything can be possible and we can really live a life that you want and leave the past behind on the East Coast or the West Coast. So it is a little bit of a challenge to balance, you know, having a multi-issue advocacy group like Free State Colorado to try and balance and walk that tightrope where you're not alienating too many people on either side because then you're left alone. But I think being consistent and talking about a specific philosophy of liberty answers most of the questions people would have in terms of it's not left, it's not right. I just want people to be free to make their own decisions, to live their own lives without interference from others. 
So I'm curious, when you're starting to talk to someone who has different opinions on you, are there any signals that you look for to maybe tell you that this person's not open-minded? And do you shut down the conversation at that point? Do you have any tactics for maybe trying to get them to open up a little bit? I think the the greatest thing a person can do in order to try and have influence or have your voice heard is to befriend somebody, is to engage them on their level. You know, instead of trying to, it's so easy, especially in politics, to try and talk to people from where I'm at or my level or where you're at. But it's really about finding where the other person is at, engaging them at their level, find out what's important to them, find out who they are, what they care about, and make a human connection. Because we're humans first. Aside from all the political stuff, we're people experiencing this this life on this ball in space you know, just living our lives. We all want the same thing fundamentally. We all, maybe we have different ideas about how we get there, but we want a better lives for ourselves and our families, recognizing the common, common humanity that we all have. And that kind of gets to your point earlier about, you know, having this very narrow worldview that a lot of people seem to have these days based on, you know, this confirmation bias type of society. But yeah, just engaging people where they're at, recognizing that they're all humans, that we're all in the same place. And, and maybe you leave politics aside with certain people. Maybe there's people that are just going to fundamentally disagree with you no matter what. So, you know, that's fine. But you can still come their friend at a concert. You still share the same music, still share a beer with them if they like to drink beer. You know, you can still engage them as a human being. And there's value there more so than any political political fight, you know. Yeah, that that's wonderful. I think we've got a good quote for this episode. Unfortunately, it seems like we're moving away from that. I just saw something with Jennifer Aniston said in an interview that she's cut people out of her life because they didn't want to get the COVID vaccine. I think we're seeing less of that idea of engaging as a person, engaging on a human level and moving more towards engaging on a tribal level. And that's that's very unfortunate. I wanted to, to come back to the idea of engaging with people where they are rather than where you are. Something that I've found is many people that show strong conviction, if you ask them a few questions, it's it's almost crystal clear that they haven't actually thought through their position. They're, they've, they've maybe felt good at being part of a tribe, but they're not actually clear on why they're part of that tribe. And so, I mean, I'll, I'll use your example. You and I had a similar experience, right? Like all my teachers in high school and, you know, professors in college, they, they, they lean left. Coming out of college, I was, oh, some Bush years, I was, I voted Democrat. I remember voting for Kerry in, in that election, voting for Obama afterwards. But when I ask people and kind of drill in, I find that they, they don't often have profound feelings and thoughts about how they got there, right? They didn't read 15 books on the topic, but they, they feel comfortable. How much is this just a, a, a lack of awareness where people feel like they have to be part of a tribe? So they, they, they cling to one and then with, without saying, Hey, you know, I haven't even, I haven't done the homework to actually care about this topic. Yeah. Okay. The, the, you know, environment, you know, I'm really, really passionate about the environment. It's like, well, then can you tell me what we need to actually solve the problem? No, these guys got it. And then you're like, well, why do you care about the environment? It's like, eh, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, mean, I feel like this is a common problem that I, or not a problem. It's an observation. I, I, when you hear that, do you, do you think there's some truth in that or, 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 or not? Yeah, definitely. No, definitely. Definitely, Paul. I think there is, maybe it's evolutionary, maybe this idea of tribalism and recognizing the others and finding your in-group and using them to count on your survival is something that is an important part of, of what it means to survive as a, as a human out in the wilderness. You know, you want to be able to find the people who are going to protect you and that you feel safe around. So you're going to adopt their views or, or be part of their tribe. I think that's a very real thing. I think I think there is a challenge in this new society we have with the internet specifically and the ability for mass communication. It's, it's something to adapt to. 
where people don't necessarily have there's an overflow of information almost. You can take the time to understand an issue if you want, but it's not necessary. And you're rewarded for, for spending very little time on a topic, right? You like something and you, you share it and you move on and you keep going. And there's a, a plethora of content for you to go through without having to find one particular line of thought that you can spend the rest of your life on. Nowadays, you have every book at your fingertips where in the past, maybe you have one book and you can really dive into it and put your thought and energy and your time into it and really develop your own worldview and around that issue or that one book. And now, well, it just is one of many. And maybe we lose some of the importance of some of these ideas and we gloss over them because we don't realize that that, that it's necessary maybe to deep dive into something and to take the time to go through and really understand it. I think that's that might be one of the fundamental issues we're facing right now in modern Western society is this overflow of information or inability to really really process it all. Information overload uh, combined with data exhaust. I think we've talked about that on this podcast, just the idea that we've got so much data pollution, data exhaust, that's just, it's just noise. It's just absolutely noise. And our brain is habituated at this point to be going through timelines on social media and just collecting exhaust rather than anything meaningful. I mean, you ask yourself, hey, did what you read today in the literally hundreds, if not thousands of scrolls, did it materially improve your life in any way? (laughs) I think if most people did a, a sort of daily audit, they would find that their actions are, are probably not what they want them to be. Again, that, but that goes back to this idea of reflection. Are people spending enough time reflecting? And um, I think it's hard. I, you know, it's 24-7, 365 society uh, makes it difficult. And it's a, it's a challenge. Uh, yeah, it's Netflix and podcasts and 24-hour news cycle. It's like you don't have to actually sit down with your thoughts <laughs> if you don't want to. Right. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people don't. We've got about three minutes left. Got a couple more questions. If you have a little extra time, Brandon, kind of run through these pretty quickly. Definitely. Just, just kind of some fun things. So the last year, year and a half has been the most eventful, I think, for most of us. What is the primary lesson that you've learned? What is the one thing that you're going to always take away from this time? <laughs> so many lessons. So many lessons. Uh, I think part of it is, I mean, the first ones that come to my mind would be how fragile our society is in terms of one little thing can upset the apple cart to the point where society seems to be disintegrating around around us. You know, uh, this a black swan type of moment can kind of destabilize things to a point that I didn't necessarily expect because I think we're, you know, being so comfortable being raised in this type of society that you almost assume things will always be this way. And all of a sudden, boom, here comes something and overnight, literally overnight, life has fundamentally changed for so many people. That's a big one. Another one is just how willing people were to go along with what do what they're told. I guess I always knew that for most people, they're just going to follow their or- the orders. They're going to do what they're told. They're going to go along with whatever somebody tells them, whether it's somebody in authority. They're not going to question that authority. They're just going to follow along with what they're told. It's it, I always knew it, but it's something else to see it. It's something else to see how easily people were led by the Pied Piper of mainstream media or the local political figure to to fundamentally change their lives and to mask their faces or go behave in a way they wouldn't normally otherwise. I mean, it was it was pretty fascinating to see how easy or how quick it happened and how, yeah, it's, it's phenomenal. But I mean, it, it, was, it is phenomenal, not necessarily in a good way, but it's a phenomenon, you know, it's a huge issue. And I guess the advantage there is realizing that there's hope too. There's hope because things can shift one way so easily. Well, who's to say they can't shift the other way easily as well? Yeah, that's what we're hoping. One more question. So imagine you wake up tomorrow to a brand new world. What would you want that world to look like? No taxes. No taxes. <laughs> <laughs> we're... Every penny I earn, I get to keep. 
That should be true for everybody. Nobody has a right to your paycheck. If you're entitled to anything in this life, it is the money you earn with your own time and effort and labor, 100%. Uh, a world where people are kinder and more open, listening to each other, willing to, to have conversations rather than knee-jerk reactions. You know, people who aren't going to rely on violence to solve their problems. Because fundamentally, the biggest one of the biggest problems we have is people's willingness to use violence on each other. And if that can go away, if that can kind of be tempered quite a bit, then I think we're on our way to, to living in a true civilized society. Paul, did you have anything else? I was going to go with uh, the Steve Martin joke, which starts off talking about all the children holding hands, and then he goes on to a million dollars being given to me, and then he talks about having crazy sex with everybody, and then he just keeps on reversing the order to finally, it's it's everything about him and has nothing to do with the rest of society. So, no, but I, I think um, I love the idea of taking away violence as as a way to resolve our conflicts because we we have the capacity to do it and we struggle to do it daily. Uh, verbal violence, uh, or in 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 a obviously the worst kind of uh, way, which is the physical violence and coercion. But I, I I think that's a it's a better way, and it would be a better way for us to exist. And um, uh, hopefully, with time, we can we can get somewhere close to that. All right. So one last thing. If folks want to learn more about Free State Colorado, learn more about you, where can they go? FreeStateColorado.com. FreeStateColorado.com is the mothership uh, Telegram channel that I update pretty obsessively. So if you're on Telegram at all, it's just search Free State Colorado, t.me slash Free State Colorado, and then uh, various other groups like Colorado Liberty Activists and Libertarian Media associated with the Telegram. Uh, that's where most of the content goes on a daily basis. Free State Colorado is more for the long form type stuff. But yeah, lot, lots in the works, email newsletter, events, um, interviews, a lot going on, a lot. We're just, we're just getting started here. We're going to ramp things up. So. Hope, hope people can join us for that journey. Awesome. awesome. Well, well, thanks for joining us. And can we get you back on here maybe in a little while? Talk about more uh, local politics stuff and more about your observations on politicians and the political machine. Oh, 100%. I'd love to. Thank you guys very much. It's been an incredible opportunity. I've, very, I've really enjoyed this. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks, Brandon. Likewise. We appreciate it. Well, that will do it for this episode of Mentally Unscripted. But hey, you're one step closer to kicking all this tribal garbage peddled by the politicians and the media to the side and seeing the world for what it really is with intelligence and rationality. Take care. To get a copy of today's show notes and links to the resources mentioned in today's episode, go to mentallyunscripted.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for the Mentally Unscripted newsletter so you'll be the first to know about the new episodes and get bonus material not available anywhere else. That's mentallyunscripted.com.